Morning, everyone. It's really good to be back again, and thank you for the opportunity of being with you. I wondered really whether to, as this is the first Sunday in Advent, whether to bring a Christmas message or not, but I couldn't get away from this passage in Jeremiah 14, and that's going to be our subject this morning. So the words will appear on the screen, I'm assured by Richard, and uh, I'm going to read with you the first 16 verses of Jeremiah 14. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns her city's language. They wail for the land, and a cry goes up from Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns, but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled. Dismayed and despairing, they cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and cover their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals. Their eyesight fails for lack of pasture. Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. For our backsliding is great, we have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its saviour in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveller who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. This is what the Lord says about this people. They greatly love to wander, and they do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. But I said, Ah, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, You will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, No sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and famine. And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There will be no one to bury them or their wives, their sons or their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. 
We discover a little bit later in this prophecy that Jeremiah gets so fed up with preaching this same type of message that he actually says to the Lord, I'm not going to do it anymore. There is so much disturbance in myself because of the message that you've given me to preach that I'm not going to say it anymore. We'll be looking at that, God willing, in the, in the new year. And I'm sure you've recognized in the sections we've looked at recently that there is this repetitive element within the message that Jeremiah was given, that there seems to be absolute darkness and no sense of light <coughs> and no sense of the dawning of the grace of God at all. And the whole of Jeremiah, he prophesied for almost 50 years, and the whole of Jeremiah seems to be just full of these doom and gloom stories and the emphasis which the Spirit of God places in his own mind and heart. At the minute, Israel is suffering the longest drought in its history. There have been five years when the winter rains have failed. And the Sea of Galilee, where uh, Israel draws about 30% of its water from, the Sea of Galilee is at its lowest level that has ever been seen. Fortunately, in 2005 and since then, Israel has been building desalination plants which are linked to the Mediterranean Sea rather than to the River Jordan and the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So about 70% now of Israel's water is from desalination. But they have recently issued uh, an edict to say that people should take shorter and shorter showers. In a hot country, that's probably not advisable. But they, the idea is that they can save about a sixth of their water each day if the Israelis learn to take shorter showers. They haven't suggested a length, but someone said that perhaps 90 seconds should be the maximum. Now, if you think about yourself when you get in the shower, it probably takes you 90 seconds to get the water temperature to what you would like it to be, <laughs> and then you have a shower. But it's interesting just the, the sort of dearth of water that Israel suffers from. And because it lies at the junctions of three continents, which is one of the reasons why it's always been so important strategically, it is one of the driest places on earth. It has very short winter rainfall, about five weeks if it gets winter rainfall at all. As I said, it's been five years in drought. And that forms the basis of this chapter that we have read together, that it's a period of drought. And the word of the Lord is connected to the physical drought which the nation is experiencing at the time when Jeremiah brings his message. Or if I can express it the other way, the drought is a helpful way in illustrating in the word of the Lord what God wants to say to this particular nation. So I want to spend a moment or two just looking at these first six verses. If you could bring them up again, Richard, that'll be, that'll be helpful. Because it describes the sort of scenario that the Israelis are in at this time as Jeremiah brings the message. Verse 2, Judah mourns her city's language. 
they wail for the land, and a cry goes up from a cry goes up from Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns, but find no water. Uh, when they go to the cisterns, they're not going to toilet cisterns. The cisterns are those pits that have been dug, usually in rock, in order to store water. Uh, Jill and I were fortunate enough to go to the fortress of Masada, which is in the desert of Judea. And there are three cisterns there, uh, one of which uh, would hold the same amount of water as St. Paul's Cathedral. So if you can imagine St. Paul's being filled with water, uh, one of the cisterns at Masada is actually that capacity. Uh, there was enough water stored in Masada during times of rain in the desert to keep the citadel there, which had about 900 soldiers, to keep the citadel there in water for three years, even though there was no further rain. So the building of cisterns is something that took a, a, a lot of place in Israel at the time when Jeremiah is writing. But really what's being illustrated here is that regardless of the preparations that we make, and you and I make preparations in our life to provide for ourselves, uh, perhaps for the future or when we retire or whatever, um, we make preparation. But it's very wise to recognize that the preparations that we make will not meet the needs of our hearts and our souls. And really that's the core of what Jeremiah says to the nation at this particular time. Because sometimes a Christian community and sometimes we as individuals have a sense of, of dryness in our own hearts, a sense of aridity, a sense of perhaps being out of touch with God. And I can remember particularly one long period of three and a half years in my own life as I transitioned from teenage to my 20s, and I was really conscious of a dearth in my own living, as a sense of God being distant. And the heavens almost seemed like brass, and it didn't seem to matter how much I prayed or, or cried out to the Lord. I couldn't get back in touch with Him. And I had that long period, a, a sort of desert experience, and I hope I never have as long a period again. But sometimes a Christian community... Uh, is afflicted by this sense of dryness. And I was interested in what Steve was saying this morning, um, that until he was almost 38, he had no sense of God and just an awareness of <laughs> darkness. And then suddenly he came into the light and his life's been transformed since. So both individually and collectively, there is this danger of a dearth of an emptiness in our souls and our life. And so the last part of verse 3, they return with their jars unfilled, dismayed and despairing, and they cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and cover their heads. So you have this sort of sense of just an immense lack, uh, a sense of an awareness that something has gone wrong. And again, just to remind you of what Steve said earlier, this is so much the state of our nation and the state of the world at large at the minute. 
I, I've talked to men who are even older than I am and find them saying things to me like they have never known a period like this in all of their history. That this has just been, as Steve so aptly said, a mess. And men's hearts are, are failing them for fear. There are 42, 42 unresolved conflicts on the face of the earth at the moment. Seems almost unimaginable, doesn't it? 42 unresolved conflicts. And it doesn't seem to matter where you look. Um, one of the pieces of advice I was given by one of my lecturers when I was at college was buy a decent newspaper every day. I don't buy a decent newspaper every day, but I buy a newspaper most days. And the amount of stuff that's in it, when you begin to look at the little bits and pieces, is just incredible. Men's hearts are failing them for fear. And it appears as though, and I use the term carefully, God has deserted the earth. And if it wasn't for his generosity and the harvests that we experience, it wouldn't just be a third of the world that was short of food. It would be all of us. So we're living in this sense of, of a lack. And even here, the wild animals, the doe in the field and the wild donkeys stand on the barn heights and pant like jackals, a very apt description. So there's a wasting in the land. And Jeremiah then takes this up and applies it very directly in the spiritual sense to what's happening in the land of Israel as he brings this message. And he says this in verse 7. Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. Do something for the sake of your name. It's just an appeal from his heart, an appeal from the heart of the land of Judah. Please intervene. Please do something that will make a difference. Please demonstrate who you are. A little bit later in the passage, we read that um, Jeremiah refers to the Lord Jesus as sovereign Lord, or to put it another way, king of the universe. And that's actually the import of what he's saying. You who are in charge of everything, intervene in our lives in such a way that we'll notice there's a difference. And so he uses these two terms in verse 8. O hope of Israel, O its saviour in times of distress. We're going to be celebrating the coming of the saviour to earth. One of the names that the angel told his parents to give him was that he shall be called Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. And this one who came, came as the saviour, the one who saves. And I think we have tended to, to lose sight of that in our recent preaching and thinking that, you know, this, this one, his prime objective in coming to earth was not to be a nice wee baby born in a manger, his prime objective in coming to earth was to die upon a cross so he could be our saviour, so that he could deal with our sins, so that he could deal with the drought in our lives, that he could deal with this dearth 
that we're so often conscious of and bring something of his presence into the immediacy of our experience. And I would say with Steve, you know, to know, to know the Lord Jesus is the greatest thing in life. And to have the privilege of getting to know him better from day to day is just terrific because he's our saviour. He, he constantly saves and he engages in bringing our lives to fruition and bringing from them those things that we can best accomplish. In fact, he has designed us to be so. And whenever he intervenes in our life, our life suddenly blossoms in ways that we couldn't previously have imagined. So he becomes our saviour. He saves us from our sins. But he is also our hope. Uh, I belong to a little group, or I have belonged to a little group for some years called Maranatha. And we go about the country preaching particularly about the return of the Lord Jesus. The word Maranatha means even so come. Even so come, Lord Jesus. And we look forward to that. You know, our hope is in him. And the Savior didn't just die on a cross, but he was raised from the dead. And he's coming back one day. And coming back soon to complete his saving of us. And when Paul is writing in Romans chapter 8, he says, The whole creation groaneth as a woman in labor until now, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Waiting for that day when the Savior will rend the heavens and everyone who's a Christian within the grave will rise from the grave and those of us who are alive and remain will be changed and caught up together with them. What a day that'll be. What a day. And this is our hope. It's not a vague hope. It's not something that we have a notion might happen. This is what will happen. And this is what our faith demands. And, you know, for him to be outlined here in this passage as the hope of Israel and the saviour of the same and the sovereign Lord, as occurs later in the passage, is just an immense thing that we ought to hold constantly in mind. And you may remember that last week uh, we looked at those verses that Steve had, had read to us. This reality of the Saviour actually filling our lives, that he is who he is, that he is the living Saviour, and everything, everything else is dead. And it's only he who can bring life to our living. And so there's this word of confession that you have in verse 7. Our backsliding is great. We have sinned against you. And then this series of questions, and that's really why I'm in this passage this morning, and not preaching on Isaiah 9, which was in my mind also. Why are you like a stranger in the land and a traveler who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? Why? And what Jeremiah is saying is, why haven't you intervened? Why haven't you expressed yourself? Why are you like a stranger? Why are you here just like a, a traveler for a night? Why is it that you uh, look like someone who's been taken by surprise? 
and like a, a warrior that's powerless to save. Why have you not intervened? And I have that question for ourselves as far as 21st century Britain is concerned. Why has God not intervened with all the nonsense that has gone on in the last 20 years? Why is the country in the mess it's in? Why has that which was logical and practical until 20 years ago suddenly become bigotry and since then? You know, why can you not have an opinion which is scriptural and biblical without being labelled a bigot? Why can you not tell the truth without being told that you're telling lies? Why has the whole perspective changed? Why has God not intervened? I'll tell you why. Because the nation has decided this the way it's going to go. We have decided to exclude God from our perspectives. And I mention again what I mentioned last week. We haven't had a single politician, to my knowledge, that has mentioned God in any words that they have spoken in the last two weeks. There's no place for God in our society. So why should we expect God to intervene? Why should we have created the scenario in which we're finding ourselves and then say it's God's fault? Why isn't God on our side? And so Jeremiah is raising exactly the same question here. And then he says this. You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Don't leave us permanently alone because there are those amongst us who bear your name. And I know, and I talk to, to many folk during the week, and they tell me how much they're praying for God to intervene. There are people who bear his name. Many of you here this morning. And you cry out to the Lord at times for his intervention so that there might be a change, that there might be a difference. But we're going to discover, and I'll close with this in just a few moments, we're going to discover that God has got another agenda here. And we're given an insight from verse 10 onwards. Let me read these words to you again. This is what the Lord says about this people. They greatly love to wander they do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. So God is looking at the nation of Israel at this particular time as Jeremiah is bringing his message to them and he's saying, look, you folk love to wander. You love to go your own way. They don't restrain their feet. They engage in all sorts of practices. So the Lord doesn't accept them. And he's going to remember their wickedness and will punish them for their sins. And I want to just ask the question, do you think that's possibly what's happening at the minute? Are we reaping the rewards of our sinfulness as a nation? Is there a sense in which God has stepped aside and just said, well, look, You've decided you're going to wander in your own way. You're going to do your own thing. You're going to do it your way. And I'll leave you to do that. Is that a possible interpretation 
of the situation in 21st century Britain. And then these sad, sad words. The Lord said to me, don't pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I'll not listen to their cry. Although they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword and famine and plague. So God is at work, or going to be at work in the natural world. And the actual punishment that came upon Judah when Jerusalem fell in 586 to the Chaldeans was fraught with imminent danger. It is said that the streets of Jerusalem flowed with blood to the depth of the horses' withers when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, came into Jerusalem in 586 BC and destroyed it. And this people were for 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And during that time, Daniel began his prophecy and Ezekiel began his prophecy and so on. So you can't trifle with God. That, that's really the central message of this particular passage in Jeremiah. You can't use him like a convenience. You can't say, well, every time I'm going to cry out to him, he's going to intervene in my life and he's going to make a difference. Because God is God and God will decide and take stock of what our particular perspectives are. And then Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah pleads for them and he says this, Sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. God says the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. You know, it's the hiding of the truth is one of the real dangerous things in our society. I've been interested in looking at one or two of the debates, and I don't watch many of them, but one or two of the debates that have been aired recently and the overlying emphasis that comes across is we can't trust our politicians. They tell us lies all the time. Why should we vote for people who lie to us? Etc., etc., etc. The prophets prophesy lies. And they say, well, it's all going to be okay. You know, we can sort it out. We're the guys who have all the answers. And God will give you lasting peace and everything is going to, and the garden's going to be rosy. And God says, no, it ain't. Because God will judge sin. And the people who are prophesying thus, you have a phrase at the, the end of verse 14. All they're talking about is the, the delusions of their own minds. The delusions of their own minds. The delusions of their own minds. They think it's going to be okay, but it's not going to be okay. And this will be the outcome. The same, those same prophets will prophesy, will perish by sword and famine. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. These are desperate words. Desperate words. And yet, true. And as I said, a few years later, the Chaldeans were going to come and destroy Jerusalem. And this place, which had been a place of truth and sanctuary 
for many generations was going to be left like a wilderness. The hiding of the truth is the greatest curse of our generation. Nobody tells the truth anymore. And if you tell the truth, I mention again, you're a bigot. If you say God says this should not be, and people say, oh, you're bigoted. No, you're not. You're truthful. And it seems to me that we need to be salt and light in the earth, that this is our calling. And we face major issues in our generation, but we need to express what God says. And I admire Jeremiah. You know, he, he was a lonely voice in Jerusalem and Judah at this time. There wasn't any support for him. All the rest of the prophets had a different notion altogether about what was going to happen. And Jeremiah kept saying, well, this is what God says. This is what God says. This is what God says. And so we're faced with this issue in our generation. Are we going to be true? Are we going to tell the truth? Are we going to truth and love as the epistle to the Ephesians talks about in chapter 4 of that lovely letter? Are we going to be straight with one another, first of all, and also in the society in which we live? I'm sorry to bring such a message on the first Sunday in Advent, but I really couldn't get away from it. And it just seems so apt in the drought which we face in our generation. The Lord bless you. Let's just pray together. Father, we hardly know what to pray this morning as we recognize that our nation has turned its back upon you and gone its own way and wandered because it likes wandering. And we find ourselves in a society in which your name is not revered and indeed hardly mentioned. And we want to bring our nation to you. We want to bring ourselves to you. We ask, Father, that you'll revive us again and bring the light of your presence and the joy of knowing you into the center of our lives so that as we talk to others and spend time with others, we may be able to share with them a message of hope, a message which relates to yourself. And we ask, Lord, that you may give us opportunities during this Christmas season just to share with others the joy and love that we know from our Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'll just use us in these days for your glory. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.